Some people call it creative confidence as well. Creative courage, creative confidence, it's all the same. In order to have that creative courage or confidence, the leader has to set the right tone or, or the right climate. Welcome everyone to Culture by Design. I'm thrilled today to have with me Mark Polson, an incredibly talented gentleman that I've known for a few years. Mark, welcome to the podcast. I'm so grateful that you would take some time to join us. I'm happy to be here, Tim. It's good to see you again. Yeah, it's good to see you. For our listeners, I want to tell you a little bit about Mark. So Mark is principal and founder of Polson and Associates, a consultancy focused on design thinking and helping organizations build their capabilities in creativity and innovation. Let me go back a little bit. So in August of 2021, Mark was appointed associate professor for the MPS Cosmetics and Fragrance Marketing and Management Program in the School of Graduate Studies at the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York. Now, Mark, I think that's part of the state university system, is it not? Yes, that's correct. Fashion Institute of Technology, or, or FIT, is part of what we call the, the SUNY system. Yeah, it's part of the SUNY system. That's right. Prior to his appointment, he had been an adjunct professor for 15 years, teaching the courses, managing the creative process. As a passionate advocate of lifelong learning, he's been recognized twice with faculty leadership awards and uh, voted on by MPS students. In 2021, Mark was also the recipient of the Cody Award for Professional Excellence given to distinguished alumni of the MPS program. Prior to that, Mark was with the Estee Lauder companies for over 28 years, 28 years. As vice president of creativity and business innovation, he worked closely with business units across the organization to help teams develop a design-driven approach. We'll talk about that, what that means, a design-driven approach to solving strategic business issues, especially in the use of design thinking tools and methodologies. Over the course of his career working at the Estee Lauder companies, he consulted with leadership teams in the UK, Europe, South Africa, and Asia Pacific. He is a member of the Rutgers Business School Marketing Program Advisory Board. He also sits on the boards of several philanthropies. He holds a Bachelor of Industrial Design degree from Syracuse and a Master of Professional Studies from the Fashion Institute of Technology. Mark, wow. It's an incredible background that you have. I want to go back and get a little biographical with you. How did you get into the beauty industry from the beginning? Tell us a little bit about your background, maybe even back up and just give us a quick sketch and then tell us how, how you got here. Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, one of the things that, that I always tell people and I actually tell my students, you know, when I was in, when I was in college, I had this notion that your career trajectory sort of went in this kind of Northeast direction, ending up in that, that upper right-hand quadrant. And it was just, you know, it was just that linear progression. Well, you know, that was a kind of a naive thought. And obviously over the years, I, I've learned that, you know, that's not quite the case. And 
your career can go over through many, many fits and starts. To really, really go back, the reason that I went to school for industrial design is because I actually wanted to be um, an automotive designer. And I ended up really not following that passion, but I, I was very interested in product design and the look, the look of products. That was something that I really wanted to pursue. So when I graduated from uh, Syracuse, I spent the first few years of my career working in various roles as a junior designer in both uh, some small consulting firms and I had some, I had some corporate roles. So design was always in you. Oh, design was always, always <laughs> in me. I mean, it was in your DNA from the beginning. I mean, as, as even as a small child, you know, I was always fascinated by the look of things. You know, I may be giving away a little bit much about my my age, but as a, you know, as a small child, I I grew up in an era when cars still had tail fins. <laughs> you know, that kind of really, yeah, sparked my imagination. The other thing that you know, it's funny how certain things influence us. And what we end up doing with our lives, you know, I feel that one of the primary influences on my desire to go into industrial design was as a young child going to the 1964 World's Fair. In New York. In New York, yeah, which was a, um, I don't know how many people in your audience uh, are of age where they remember it, but it was something that can really set your imagination on fire. You know, what I think of as kind of being an industrial designer's dream, especially going to the the car pavilions, the General Motors pavilion and the, and the Ford pavilion, which painted these absolutely amazing and optimistic visions of what the future was going to be. And I really felt like I wanted to be part of that. That event, was that like a turning point or a defining experience that just fired your imagination? I think it was an inflection point for me. It was that. And again, as a, as a very young adolescent, I found a book in my public library called The Ford Book of Styling, which was a promotional book that Ford had put out in the early 60s and was really kind of to promote the design function at the Ford Motor Company. And as you flip through the pages, you saw pictures of designers working on drawing boards and drawing these you know, amazing sketches of automobiles or working in these big studios and building and making clay models of the cars of the future. And I just decided that that was something that I wanted to be part of. That's amazing. So that, that was in you from the beginning. Yes, absolutely. But first, your first passion was cars. Yeah. And still is to a certain extent. Oh, okay. Okay. But somewhere along the line, your career path took some different turns. So, so keep going with the story. As I said before, I worked for various consulting firms and you know, I was in corporate design uh, offices. At a certain point in, in the, the mid-80s, you know, there was an inflection point with the economy and uh, you know, some things were slowing down. And I made a decision to take a little change in the course of my career. And what I did is I, I moved into a part of design that at that point, what I think was also going through some changes, it was burgeoning, and that was a design of merchandising or what we called point of purchase displays. So all the different types of displays that you would see in the retail environment, be it supermarkets, be it department stores, be it big box retailers. So all those things, anything from you know cardboard pop-up displays to shelf merchandisers, you know, on the high end of department stores, you know, countertop displays, that sort of thing. Everything that greets us when we have a retail experience. Exactly. 
And I believe at that point, the industry early on was really populated by people who were show card artists. And I think in the 80s, it really began to become much more sophisticated. Organizations realize, or B2C organizations realize the importance of how important merchandising was. So I was kind of there at that inflection point. It was, you know, what I considered to be a very creative area. So I stayed with it and I had worked for about two or three different companies that were producers of displays and merchandising. And mostly that their clientele, you know, could be supermarkets, um, it could be uh, CPG companies, retail drugstores, but also the beauty industry. And that particularly sparked my imagination because just the opportunity to design something sophisticated and elegant and that appealed to the luxury market. So that moved you into beauty eventually? Yes, that moved me into beauty eventually. At, at one point, I had the opportunity, somebody gave me a lead, and I moved from a display company to, at that time, Revlon. And when I joined Revlon, I joined a small department, and I was the art director for international merchandising, which was actually a, a very interesting role. And I had the opportunity to work on merchandising systems for all different types of uh, you know, retail outlets. Some, you know, many of them abroad. I didn't get to do too much traveling at that point. My boss was doing all the traveling, but I, I worked on merchandisers that would end up being in, at that time, duty-free stores in Hawaii, some systems for Japan. And then at that time also got the opportunity, there were some in-store in domestically in the United States and worked for some installations that were for Revlon. At that time, Revlon was trying to make a comeback into department stores from drugstores. And also there are some of the higher end brands that Revlon had at that time, one of them principally being Princess Marcella Borghese. I had got some experience of working on in-store environments as well. Fantastic. And then eventually you're at Estee Lauder for 28 years, and we could talk about that for a long time. But I want to come back to this concept that you and I have talked about before, Mark, and that is design thinking. Design thinking. In basic terms, what is it? And do some people have it and some people don't? Because one of the ways that we kind of partition ourselves as humans is that people tend to say, I'm artistic or I'm not, right? I think that's kind of a demarcation that we often use. And people describe themselves as being artistic or not. So how does design thinking play into this? What is this? I want to get into design thinking, but before we even talk about that, I want to, I want to kind of double click on your, your comment about being creative or not. And over the years at Estee Lauder, you know, I've worked with various consultants and I, you know, did some research myself, you know, what I came to learn, there are actually instruments out there that can help you determine this, that creativity is actually a very human thing. We tend to think of creativity as being talent. You may hear people say, oh, you know, she's so talented. You know, look, look how artistic she is. But creativity is really something that falls along a continuum. So everyone falls somewhere along that continuum. And let's think of it as being one end of the continuum as being people who like to work within a very high structured type of situation. They like working within a, a set set of rules. They like working within existing paradigms. Whereas at the other end are people who are, let's say they are lower structured. 
and they're less likely to work within existing paradigms. They may even try to create their own rules. So those are the two ends of the spectrum, and you know everyone falls somewhere along in between. And there are some instruments out there that will help you determine where you might fall. And really what this speaks to is one's approach to problem solving. So everyone goes about solving problems in different ways. When you begin to break it down, when we talk about creativity, what is creativity really? Creativity, one of the definitions of creativity, it's not the only definition, but one of the definitions is that creativity is about problem solving. You don't come up with creative solutions unless there's some sort of issue that needs to be solved. Well, it's interesting, Mark, because when you said spectrum or continuum, I immediately thought, oh, he's going to talk about people that are less creative and it goes from less to more. But that's not the way that you framed it at all. You're talking about a spectrum that runs from unstructured to highly structured. So it's not about less or being less or more creative. It's about the way that you're creative. So everybody's included. Everyone's included. So the beauty, the reason why I like this type of approach is that it's completely, it's not pejorative in any way, shape, or form. Now, there are, there are instruments out there, there are measurements of level of creativity, but it is completely unrelated to style of creativity. Style. It's about people's creative style. What's your style? And no, there is not one style is not better than the other. As someone I used to work with used to say, any place is a good place to be. Now, you know, when we're having that conversation, one style of problem solving or one style of creativity, it's a much more important conversation to have than talking about level of creativity. Have you found yourself going through life trying to convince people that they are creative when they self-label themselves as not being creative? You're trying to disabuse them of, hey, don't call yourself a non-creative type. I imagine that you've come up against that again and again and again. I spent a lot of time at, at a state lawyer trying to convince people. Of <laughs> we built some workshops within Estee Lauder, you know, first really for people within, you know, within the New York headquarters, that uh, was a program that was about creativity and innovation and, you know, how do you develop it and how do you work with it? And, you know, as I said in my, in my bio, I had the opportunity to take these programs and these workshops on the road and brought them to you know, various parts of the world, Europe, Asia Pacific region, South Africa. But the interesting thing that I found is because this is very much a human thing, it's not something that's about particular cultures, although we, we may see certain cultures as being more rigid than others or uh, more freer than others. It's pretty much a human thing. And when we use that instrument to determine people's style of creativity, the results are largely the same you know, all around. The spread of people across the continuum doesn't seem to vary very much. So it didn't matter if you were going into a different cultural zone right? It could, you could be in Europe, you could be in Asia Pacific, you could be in Latin America. Yeah. You saw the same patterns. You saw the same patterns. So, you know, if, if, I'm, if I was in Japan, which people may, you know, may think of Japanese people are, you know, one particular way, there was no different from, you know, Australia or the UK or Germany or France. So the stereotypes melted away. 
stereotypes melted away. It's a human thing. What happens is when you start to frame creativity in that way and start to pull it away from it's all about being artistic or it's about being musically inclined and you open it up and it's really about solving problems and bringing new ideas together in a new and interesting way, it becomes empowering to people. And oftentimes we've had people you know, walk who originally walked into the session saying, this is going to be terrible. I'm not creative in it in any way. I'm so not creative. I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I work with numbers. People walking out saying, wow, I really am creative. Yeah. So Mark, what you're doing is you're changing the question. The instinctive question maybe for many people is to ask themselves, am I creative or not? Am I a creative type? And what you're saying is, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's replace that question with, this question, how am I creative? Get to know the way that you're creative. Do you like a lot of structure? Do you like a little structure? What is your style of being creative? You are creative. You just need to know how. You need to get to know yourself. So much of this is a, is a journey in self-awareness, it seems. Absolutely, Tim. You know, what you just said is very similar to the, you know, the way we would frame it and say, you know, the, everyone asks themselves, how creative am I? Well, the more important question is, how am I creative, as you just said? That's the more important question to ask, especially when you're working within organizations. Okay, so let's segue to another relationship that is so vital. And this is an arena that you've been in for so many years, and that is the relationship between creativity and culture. So the conditions around you, the climate around you, the atmosphere around you, the relationship between those two, let's talk a little bit about that. What have you learned about that? There is other bodies of research that speak to this idea of, well, why are some organizations considered to be more creative or more innovative than other organizations? Is it because of uh, you know, the amount of R&D spend does it have something to do with the technology that they have? Does it have something to do with the way that they, they hire talent? But out of some research that came out of Sweden in the 70s, this research showed that it wasn't any of that at all. It was actually the prevailing climate within an organization, which is different from culture, but the climate spoke to the prevailing moods attitudes and behavior and you know the current actions of what what essentially is going on in the room so to give you an example the culture of an organization spreads throughout the organization so no matter where an office might be located within an organization more or less it's that culture of that of that company the climate can be quite different so the climate going on in an office and a headquarters in new york can be significantly different than the climate going on in the office in, in, let's say, in, let's say, Paris. And that is largely driven, it's driven by many factors, but the research shows that about two-thirds of climate is driven by leadership. So, Mark, when you say that, climate, does that primarily mean local culture, kind of the microculture of a given office or team or location or group? It's more like the microclimate. It really has to do with 
you know, what are the attitudes? What are the behaviors that are going on? What people see and people tend to model the behavior of, of their leaders, how leaders are treating ideas. How are leaders treating questions? How are le leaders treating news from their team that may not be the news that they necessarily want to hear? Point is that it's going back to the modeling behavior of the leader. And it's based on the direct interactions of that leader or leaders with their people. And that's the key factor that accounts for that climate. And then that climate in turn, from a creativity standpoint, is drawing people out, or it's not drawing them out, it's maybe shutting them down. So I can't imagine the examples and the case studies that you've witnessed of this over the years and how profoundly that climate is affecting the creativity. I can give you one example from my own experience. You know, many, many years ago, when I was part of a, a different team, at a certain point, our team got a new boss. Someone who had been based in Paris was given more responsibility, and um, she became uh, the manager of our, our team. And uh, she would come in every six weeks to, from Paris uh, and spend a week with us. When she first started as, as our leader, she brought all of us into a conference room and sat us down and handed us all a sheet of paper. And the sheet of paper said, literally said, the rules. And you know, as she began talking, she started pounding her fist on the table and saying, the reason mistakes are made is because people don't follow the rules. And she kept repeating it over and over again. You could hear a pin, a pin drop in the room. And, you know, we were sitting at a big round marble table. And I turn around and I look at, at my colleagues. And I see, I slowly see all the, the color begin to drain from, from every, everybody's face. But over time, I mean, you can fill in the blanks. You can, you can imagine what happened over, over time is, you know, morale dropped, productivity dropped. And at a certain point over time, this particular individual ended up exiting the company. So it came down to the leader's ability to draw people out. It reminds me of, there's a statement by Henry Matisse, the French impressionist. He said, it's very simple. He just said, creativity takes courage. I find myself thinking about that. Creativity takes courage. Well, other people can help you with that right? The culture, the team, the leader can help you with that. You ultimately will make the choice as to whether you will release, release your creative potential or not, but the culture is going to have a big impact on your willingness to do that. It's vulnerable behavior, isn't it? Creativity is vulnerable behavior. Completely. And uh, yeah, some people call it creative confidence as well. Creative courage, creative confidence, it's all the same. In order to have that creative courage or confidence, the leader has to set the right tone or, or the right climate. They are very much related to you know, psychological safety, Tim, which is something that you, you know about very well. Without that, you know, people are going to be afraid to put their ideas forward. Or if the leader, you know, if the ideas fall on deaf ears, 
you know, at a certain point, people are just going to throw up their hands and say, well, you know, I mean, no one's going to listen to me anyway. Why, why should I even bother? Well, let's talk about that, though. You said something that I think is interesting. You said fall on deaf ears. If you put some kind of creative expression out there, what do you want? You want a response. You want people to react to it. So if it falls on deaf ears, if there's indifference, if no one cares, well, isn't that the same as having that act of creative expression punished? It's a form of punishment. It absolutely is. There's no, no question about it that, well, let me put it this way. What I learned through my experience as I was you know, working at Estee Lauder and going to some of these workshops, I had the opportunity to talk to a lot of people, all different countries. And what I found was people, even if, if their ideas were not really accepted or, or they were told you know, that maybe we're not ready for that yet, that was okay. What people really wanted was to know that their ideas were heard, or they would, and they wanted to know, well, where where were their ideas going? Had it had it gone through some channels? Was it considered? You know, where where was it? And some sort of response back saying, you know, you know, you had a really interesting idea. I think the timing may not be right for it, but let's hold that thought. You still validated the idea. You validate the idea. You yeah, you validate the person. You validate the person, even if the timing's not right or something like that, right? And it's as simple as, you know, I was taught a little tool years ago as a way of as how a leader can react when someone comes to them with an idea. And it's called PPC, Positives, Potentials, and Concerns. So it's a way of framing feedback to somebody when they come to you with an idea. So you start off, you have a conversation about, what's positive about it? What do you like about it? What are the potentials? Where could you possibly see this idea being implemented? Uh, where could it possibly go? And then finally, then you, you may express what concerns you may have about the idea. It's a framework. And I found it's actually, you know, quite effective. And, you know, I think the person will walk away from the conversation feeling very good about themselves and feeling very good about that discussion. And it draws them out. So, let me ask a related question, Mark. One of the things that I see people in organizations do is they're so deeply socialized to believe that when they put an idea on the table, it needs to be crystallized. It needs to be evidence-based. It needs to be completely thought through. So what does that do? That has the effect of neutralizing the desire to put ideas on the table because from a creative standpoint, what if your idea is raggedy? What if it's half-baked? What if it's a gut instinct, but you think there's some merit to it, there's something to it, and you feel that I want to express it? Well, if you've been deeply socialized in this culture that says you don't put anything on the table until it's refined, crystallized thinking, it kind of reminds me of manufacturing, right? We begin with raw material, and then we go to semi-finished goods, and then we go to finished goods, the final product. And so there's this expectation in many cultures that you need to put finished goods on the table. Who's going to do that? So I think about the violence that that must do to the creative process. It's interesting. So two comments on that. A raw idea in that form that you're talking about 
and again, this is a conversation that, that I've had, you're bringing forth an idea that's brand new. How can you measure that? You have nothing to benchmark it against. You know, how can you measure something that's completely new to the world? There's nothing else to benchmark it against. So you can't evaluate it against existing metrics. And certainly not past performance, right? As you say, there's nothing there. <laughs> there's nothing there. There is nothing there. That's it. It's a, it's a blank sheet of paper. Again, you know, I, the other part of that is going back to, okay, so it's, a, it's in a rough form rather than saying, and it goes back to an old improv exercise instead of saying, yes, but, you know, the improv exercise goes, you know, it's about yes and. So when you say yes, but that, that shuts down the conversation entirely. But when you say yes, and that gives the opportunity to build upon the conversation. And they sound so simple, Tim, don't they? I mean, they, they, they do, but they work. They work. Okay. So we need to stop there. They sound so simple, but they work. They're time tested. There are some practices here with creativity that are time. They've passed the test of time. Mark, let's come back to design thinking a little bit. As I've studied design thinking a little bit, people say an important part of that is to use empathy. So we need empathy as we're trying to figure out how to interact with our environment and how to design something. What does that mean? The whole idea of, of design thinking is it's really based on this idea of considering the human the technological and the strategic needs of the business or, or the entity for the question that you're answering. Human being the, uh, the key factor here. Sometimes it's called human-centered design. And what that is suggesting is that you're designing for, for someone, what is the particular problem that this person may, may have that needs to be solved for? And what's interesting about it is a, in your initial research, you are oftentimes uncovering unarticulated needs, which leads to the opportunity to innovate into new space. Okay, hang on a second. So I think you, so when we set out to design something, we're, we're designing for, we're solving for something. But what I hear you saying, Mark, is that along the way, it's an emergent process and you may surface some needs or opportunities that you are not anticipating. Exactly. It, because it's so much starting from, you know, a place of, of ambiguity, say, let's say a, a blank sheet of paper. It's less of a puzzle. You know, sometimes you're putting puzzles together, but it's really not so much that. It's really starting from that this blank sheet of paper. A lot of the design thinking methodology evolved. It's not new. It started in the 1960s. But the folks at, at Stanford were really the ones that really started doing research on it. Actually, one of the folks that was involved at that time was a, um, a professor, a man named Rolf Fasti, who, interestingly enough, was one of my professors back at Syracuse before he went to Stanford. So he was one of the proponents. What evolved at Stanford was something called the D School where design thinking is, is taught. One of their colleagues was a man named David Kelly, who eventually founded the firm IDEO. As a lot of people are familiar with the firm, the innovation firm. And IDEO is really the, the firm that really brought design thinking into the mainstream and really socialized it and popularized it as a business methodology. 
And basically what, what it comes down to, it is there are, it depends on who you're talking to, but there are five basic steps to uh, design thinking. There's that first step of empathy or empathizing, as you brought up, Tim. Then there's problem definition or problem framing. There's an ideation phase that's, you know, where kind of all the brainstorming happens. And uh, because there's a bias toward action with design thinking, the idea is to get into some sort of rapid prototype very quickly, no matter how crude it is to try out or experiment on the idea. Then you test out the idea. One of the things that I like about design thinking is it's an extremely iterative process. It seems linear, but you know, at each step of the way, if something's not working, you go back and you try something else, but working in a, in a, in a very rapid manner. So this is innovation in action, in essence, right? Absolutely. What else gets in the way of that? You've been in the trenches for so many years, seeing it happen and seeing it not happen. I'm sure you've worked with teams at times, Mark, that were teams that were filled with incredibly talented people, creative people, to use that word, and yet they didn't perform. They were not able to produce much, right? Even though you would think that they would have. And then perhaps other teams that you worked with, where maybe your expectations were low, and then lo and behold, they just shock everyone with what they're able to come up with. It's a complex question, Tim, but I think mostly what a lot of what it comes down to is an organization's capacity to tolerate ambiguity or to tolerate uncertainty. Because there is a there is a certain level of comfort that you have to have with ambiguity in a in a process like this. There is a lot of learnings from trying something and you know, may, maybe failing at it. And what did you learn from that kind of failure? And there are many organizations that, you know, they don't have a tolerance for, you know, for those kinds of things. Yeah, that's so true. One of the things that I, I love to say to leaders is that every source of competitive advantage that you enjoy today is melting. The only question is the rate of the melt. And so if that's true, then the sustainable source of innovation is your people and your culture. That's where we go back to. If we're trying to create an incubator of innovation, a sustained capacity to innovate, doesn't it come back to that? I mean, isn't that what you were talking about at the beginning? So don't we come full circle back to the culture and the modeling behavior of leaders if we're trying to sustain this capability? There's no question about it that it goes back to the leadership and it goes back to the people. And, you know, again, to go full circle, it's about instilling this idea that creativity comes from everywhere, that no matter what domain you are in, in an organization, you have the capacity to innovate. You have the capacity to apply creativity, you know, to come up with, with new ideas. And, you know, again, it's how those those local managers, how tolerant or how accepting are they of those those kind of ideas? We talked about climate, but you know, climate is one component of culture, and that also starts to become you know an issue of culture. Challenging because culture is very hard to change, often takes years to change. So I I would say that's probably another thing that gets in the way of unleashing this creativity. 
What about this? Speaking of things that get in the way, Mark, what about the hierarchy? Because if we're in a creative process, the creative process is agnostic to your title and your position and your authority. It doesn't care. It doesn't care. <laughs> the creative process doesn't care about those things. But yet they can get in the way. They can neutralize people. They can shut them down. It can really be a barrier in that creative process, in the process of innovating. And so I think this is where organizations struggle. They struggle to remove that obstacle of the hierarchy getting in, in the way. Well, you know, it's interesting, Tim, because uh, that you're bringing this up, because this is um, a topic now that's coming up with a lot of my grad students, you know, in the, the leadership class that, that's going on right now. And we have these conversations and, you know, the, with the research that they're doing, there's this idea, you know, the, the hierarchy or the organizational structure as we know it hasn't evolved since the, you know, the turn of the century and, you know, the coming of the industrial age. The hierarchy as we know it was designed for the, the industrial age. In today's world, really calls for a much flatter type of organization what I think of as being kind of like nodes and rays and clusters. And I think the more an organization is able to get to that place with a flatter organization and a more networked organization, I think that's going to make them more successful. Yeah. A related issue, Mark, that comes to mind is the difference. I think we confuse these two things in organizations and they get in the way. It gets in the way. The difference between participation rights on the one hand and decision rights on the other. It seems to me, you tell me if you think I'm wrong, that we need to be more explicit about this. And as I look at millennials and Gen Zers that are coming into the workforce, they expect psychological safety as a term of employment. They expect participation rights on day one. I was talking to some leaders the other day and they said, you know how it works here in our organization? When you come in, there's no participation rights, let alone decision rights. You have to listen for a year. And after you listen for a year, then we will grant you some participation rights very gradually, slowly. You, you will accumulate those participation rights. I don't know how that's going to, I don't think we can sustain that. The new employees are demanding participation rights from day one. Is that an entitlement or do you think that's appropriate? I think it's appropriate from day one for employees to have participation rights, of course, because it goes back to that idea, that notion that good ideas come from anywhere. I was working with um, a project manager who was working with me, uh, actually Tim, someone that you know, and, you know, when we had these meetings, you know, she was young and she tended to try to dominate the meeting with her ideas. What I kind of coached her to do is I would say at the, come at the beginning of the meeting is like, we've talked enough. I want to go around the room. I want to hear what everyone thinks about what we just talked about. I want to hear all their opinions. And, then, you know, that, that's like, it was like a breath of fresh air for the team. So when you, again, climate, when you set those conditions where people are feeling that, feeling that they, you know, Tim, the whole idea of participation rights, that's all about inclusion, isn't it? It is. It really is. Yeah. I mean, you can bring in, all, you know, everything that, you know, we've ever discussed about DEI, 
that's really what it comes down to is how can how can you be more inclusive and one of the ways that you could be more inclusive is by soliciting everyone's ideas well mark this has been an absolutely fascinating and insightful conversation because we're seeing the relationship between design thinking creativity innovation culture these are these four big variables that we've addressed and I appreciate you helping us understand that we've got to democratize participation and that we all are creative. It's just a matter of how we're creative. What's our creative style? It's not a binary proposition as to whether you're, you're a creative. We even use that word, right? You're a creative or you're not a creative. Everyone, so I think that's your operating assumption. Everyone is a creative. It's just how you're creative. Am I getting it? Yeah, you're getting it. That's it. This has been a masterclass in creativity, in innovation, in culture, and in design thinking. And Mark, I can't thank you enough. Any final words for our listeners? Again, just remember that for those of, those of us who are uh, leaders, that People model our behavior. And I think just ask more questions than telling. Ask more than telling. I love that. What an appropriate way to, to conclude. Mark, thanks so much for being here with us on the podcast. Tim, it was my honor. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today on the Culture by Design podcast. Be sure to subscribe and listen to new episodes every week. And if you'd like to see more of the work we're doing, go to leaderfactor.com.